Welcome back to the 56th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including what I think is a good contender for the 2022 men of the year and women, the effects that lobbying is having on the Supreme Court. An expose was released by the New York Times, and honestly, I did not like what I had to hear from that article. And lastly, a story that comes out of Afghanistan, where at this point we're about a year and some change into the Taliban's rule. Now we have to ask, what has changed, and is it for the better? And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So recently, President Biden gave the honor, or at least informally, of Man of the Year to President Zelensky of Ukraine. And while he definitely deserves recognition for his wartime leadership, it was too much of a, a stretch, too much of a show, in my opinion, for me. You know, how do you guys feel about it? Do you believe that the Ukrainian troops on the front line deserve the title more than him? Maybe the men or fighters or, sorry, the people of the year, perhaps? You know, I want to know what your opinions are on this, because at the end of the day, like I said, his leadership has been great. He has served his country well. But it, it just feels like we're pandering too much at this point. We need to be more strategic about how we are interacting with Ukraine. We don't want to bolster him too much because at the end of the day, we're probably going to see negotiations in order to end this war. I don't think either side wants that, of course, but I think that's the reality of the situation because I, Zelensky can't push into Russia, and Russia, unless they do another draft, rededicate a whole bunch of troops, which at that point would make Putin look a little weak, I don't see it really going anywhere. So what do you think about this? Was this a wise move? And are there people that deserve it more? And the first article that we're going to talk about today actually gives a different candidate for people of the year. And, you know, let's jump right into that one. This comes from the Washington Free Beacon. 2022 men of the year, the troops. And the only correction I would make is people of the year, but they're just using the term because it's simpler. And also it's in line with man of the year. So though we do not see it in the headlines highlighted that often, there are achievements of the U.S. military that have been very impressive. You know, the military has been very active over the past year or so. And like I said, you don't necessarily see these headlines because we're worried about Ukraine, the economy, the midterms. So this article wants to highlight a few of them. And I have a great quote here that runs through a lot of the achievements when it comes to going after ISIS. Quote, two top ISIS officials were vaporized in a mid-December helicopter raid by the U.S. forces that required extensive planning. U.S. Central Command spokesperson Colonel Joe Boncio said the successful operation, quote, will disrupt the terrorist organization's ability to further plot and carry out destabilizing attacks in the Middle East, end quote. In October, mid-October, U.S.-backed coalition forces in Syria 
killed Abu al-Hassan al-Hamishi al-Qasari. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. Another ISIS terror leader. A July drone strike in Syria planned by the USA took the life of Mahir al-Aga, ISIS leaders in Syria and one of its top five officials. In February, U.S. forces conducted a raid in northern northwestern Syria that eliminated ISIS head Aji Abdul, Abdul, who reportedly denoted a suicide, detonated a suicide vest that killed himself and his wife and children. End quote. So some of the you know some people, of course, would not praise or even advertise these quote unquote achievements. And they'd probably say something to the effect of, we shouldn't be involved, or why are we risking our children's lives in the Middle East? But, you know, there are lots of different thoughts and perceptions on these issues, and you're allowed to have those. At the end of the day, if you don't think that we should be involved in some of these operations, if you don't think we should be aiming for terrorists who, at this point, have not threatened the U.S. significantly, or at least the U.S. directly, maybe some interests of the U.S. and the Middle East. I can see that perspective. But at the end of the day, that's not the reality. We are operating against them. The military is engaged, whether you like it or not. So these troops who go out there and risk their lives for what they believe is protecting America, that's admirable, that's praiseworthy. So whether you agree with the politics or not, I think we can at least agree that what they're doing can't be blamed directly on the troops on the ground. And maybe there are some leaders on the ground who are making decisions, but at the end of the day, a lot of these troops are going where they're told, and they're trying to do their job the best they can. And I think they deserve a little bit of commemoration for what they're doing, because at the end of the day, if we stop presenting a strong front, though I do not think that we should be involved in wars across the Middle East, if we do not at least show a presence, have some sort of strong presence in certain regions, then our enemies are going to take advantage. And I think we can at least show up and maybe have a military base in Israel, have one in Saudi Arabia, to deter certain actors that may actually be working against American interests on the world stage. Now, does that mean that we have to be the police force going out and basically enforcing our own opinion and laws on every other nation? No. But I think at the end of the day, having a strong international presence, rather than fully withdrawing, we can still focus on our own policies here at home, economics, different housing policies, different welfare programs, if you want to focus on any of those. Of course we can. But remember, the might of America is built on its military. And in order to show the capabilities, in order to show that we have good military technology that we can sell to some of these countries, and I'm not necessarily endorsing it, I'm just saying it is a reality of the situation. We sell a lot of arms to a lot of countries. And the way we do that is by showing that we are they're capable. These weapons are useful. And also, if we have military bases there, it builds a connection between the military and the governments of those countries, and therefore is a road in when it comes to those countries bidding for or asking for bids for different 
firearms, missiles, so on and so forth. And if our economy works like that, we have a large military-industrial complex, not in the conspiratorial sense, but in the actual sense. We have a large industry built around military arms. And at the end of the day, we need to realize that we should not cut it off completely. And completely isolationist tactics will do that. And that's why it's important that these soldiers are still out there. At the end of the day, like I said, they are doing their job. They are trying to protect America. And they, in a subtle way, are protecting its interests by going out to these places and proving that some of these technologies that we're using are effective. And then we can sell them onward when they are no longer strategically needed in the future. So these soldiers do deserve a huge round of applause. And I think that this article does a great job in doing that. But the author does bring up one other aspect that needs to be talked about. The vax mandate that the Biden administration had placed on the military. And I'll just quote a few numbers of people that had to leave the service because they refused to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Quote, since the Biden administration implemented mandatory vaccination shots for all soldiers, an already strained fighting force has seen its numbers dwindle. Some 3,715 Marines, 1,816 soldiers, 2,064 sailors have been discharged for refusing the vaccine as if being vaccinated against a flu-like virus is necessary to fight in our important forever wars against enemies of freedom across the globe, end quote. And if you pick that apart there, I know that you could probably tell where the author's coming from. They have a very conservative bias, but also you can notice language like the important forever wars. So there is a little bit of populism, maybe a little bit of Tulsi Gabbard in this author as well which is always fun when you read an article and you see different sides, different folds to the paper. You see that, okay, he has some normal conservative views, but also, at the end of the day, he may have some populist views, some views of the new age, Gen Z, millennials, that we don't necessarily want to be involved in these forever wars. And both of those can be true at the same time. You can love the soldiers and what they do, but at the end of the day, you don't necessarily think that we should be imposing our will on countries around the world. You know, now there is a call for, since the VAX mandate has now been rescinded, quote, the administration has recently been forced by Congress to drop its mandate, but no process was created for those who were lost due to resignment. And the White House still stands by its assault on the troops. Notice the word assault there. Quote, we continue to believe that repealing the VAX mandate is a mistake. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said this month, end quote. You know, it is kind of sad to see that so many soldiers, Marines, so many sailors had to resign just because they disagreed with the the politics of the Biden administration. And if you think, well, no, no, it's about public health. No, no. The point that this was coming out, it was the mandate. It was politics alone. One side was pushing the vaccine harder than the other. 
and they didn't necessarily have long-term studies of two, three, four, five years or more of the effects of the vaccine. We still don't have those. If they become locked in stone, we understand all the effects like we do with a polio vaccine, perchance, then you could make a more health-based argument. But at this point, it's a political one. It is one side that told you you will be getting the vaccine if you want to operate within the military, or the other side saying you have the freedom to do what you want with your body, and you can do the research, and if you think that it is good for you, go for it. If you want to protect your family members, if you want to be at a lower risk of dying when you catch COVID, go for it. We actually encourage it, but it is still your choice. So, at the end of the day, the real point of this article, the author does get lost in the vaccine stuff at the end, but the real point of this article is to acknowledge the service men and women who have put their lives on the line for America and who honestly deserve to have their names put in the man of the year, people's man of the year. And at the end of the day, if we went by this standard, then, of course, it would only ever be the troops because they're the only ones actually out there. Or not only, but a lot of the time, there's some of the most honorable people in our society fighting for our freedoms and ensuring that we can live lives the way that we want to live. So, yes, if we went by this standard, there would never be another, probably would never be a different people of the year or man of the year on the people's title. All right, so let's jump into our second article. This one comes from Truth Out. Exposé reveals lobbyists bought access to Supreme Court justices with donations. Quote, both alarm and concern were expressed Saturday in response to a new reporting about a charitable group with close ties to the U.S. Supreme Court that has been soliciting and accepting donations from corporate interests in far-right activists with cases from this before the Supreme Court. The New York Times expose focused on the activities and fundraising of the Supreme Court Historical Society, a nonprofit that claims its mission is, quote, dedicated to the collection and preservation of the court's history. While the group refused to disclose its donors to the Times, reporters from the newspaper determined that much of the funding came from the powerful companies like Chevron, Goldman Sachs, Time Warner, and Facebook, better known as Meta now, as well as an anti-abortion activist like Reverend Rob Schneck, end quote. And when I, I first read this headline, I was honestly, I wasn't surprised, I wasn't shocked, but I was really, really frustrated. Not only has the court fallen victim to partisanship, but now, well, partisanship on both sides over the last 20 years, but now there are lobbyists going to the courts from these corporations when they have cases in front of the Supreme Court. This is absolutely outrageous. You know, many of these companies and some individuals, they're having cases or they're even representing cases that are going on and being heard in front of the Supreme Court. Over the past two decades, $23 million has been given to the Historical Society. Donations coming with invitations to events, galas, where these lobbyists can come and rub elbows with the justices. Quote, 
6.4 million, or 60%, came from corporations, special interest groups, or lawyers and firms that argue cases before the court, according to analysis of archived historical society newsletters and publicly available records that detail grants given to the society by foundations. Of that, at least 4.7 million came from individuals or entities in years when they had a pending interest in a federal court case or on appeal or at the high court. Records show. In the case of Chevron, the oil giant actively gave to the society even as it had a pending climate litigation working its way through the court. In response to the new revelations, public interest attorney Stephen Dotzinger who was himself targeted by Chevron for his work aimed at holding the company to account for its polluting activities in Ecuador, said the implications were, quote, horrifying, end quote. So this kind of very blatant paying your way is absolutely unacceptable, especially within the one institution, the single institution in the U.S. government in American life that should be least affected by outside opinions. And let's be clear, I'm not saying that they could be completely free of outside opinions, especially in the world we live in today with social media. Before, it was newspapers or radio shows, so of course it was never, never that they were being, weren't being influenced by outside factors. And it's really hard today not to be. But at the end of the day, they should not be having lobbyists come to them and say, well, uh, this is important for this, this, and this. And let's be clear, I don't know what these dis conversations disclosed, but I know for a fact that lobbyists are very squirmy. They got the silver tongues, and they're going to try to make a compelling case. And let's be clear, I think all the justices currently on there, from Sotomayor to Kavanaugh, I think they are all clever enough, smart enough, they obviously worked very hard for their position to not necessarily take in what these lobbyists are saying, or at least to say, I know where they're coming from. I'm going to just throw their opinion aside. I think they are all smart enough to do that. And I'm not saying that this necessarily has the most outsized effect, but the fact that it can even happen, the fact that it's allowed to happen, the fact that these lobbyists can come in and rub elbows with these justices is extremely dangerous because over time if enough of these suggestions happen even if they are smart enough to not take what these lobbyists say seriously and to say no no, no we're not going to actually care about whether you're donating money to the society or not we we are enjoying your company thank you for doing so it's not going to affect our opinion at the end of the day it's the principle alone in my opinion this is the one institution that should be unaffected by the outside world, if possible. It should be completely, it should be legal theory, legal doctrine, only affecting the choices of the justices. And of course, we know that some of these justices come down on partisan lines, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, we can't let this keep going. The partisan line battle has already been lost. It can be reversed over time, but it has already been lost. And the, apparently this battle has already been lost too. It's been going on for 20 years. But there are things that we can do to change it. The author does pose a solution. Instead of the funding coming from the public, the author says Congress should appropriate the money for the society. And you know, while that's nice on its face, I 
think at the end of the day, it's just more government spending, and they should actually limit who can donate to the society, to people that are not currently involved in Supreme Court cases. And, you know, of course, this does get tricky because if you donated 10 years ago and then you have a court case in front of the Supreme Court because you're a lawyer, you love the court, you love what it stands for, and now you're arguing one. That is a little bit tricky, but that's why I said currently involved in Supreme Court cases. And the reason I want to not allow Congress to appropriate the money is, at the end of the day, if you have a Congress that believes that the court is partisan, right now you could say that the court is 6-3 conservative. If a Democratic government was in place, they may limit the amount of money that goes to the society because they don't agree with the decisions of the Supreme Court. So rather than having private companies lobbying and dictating which way the court would go, it would just be another branch of government. Now, let's be clear. I don't think the society has that much of an outsized effect. But if you believe that these private interest lobbyists could have an effect, then why wouldn't the money being appropriated or not appropriated by a certain legislator not have an effect as well? So at the end of the day, I think it is smarter to have it still come from outside sources because we also don't want more government spending, or at least I don't. And you just limit who can donate to the society at any given time. Now, that may put a little bit more work on the society to really vet its people and where the certain grants are coming from. But if they want the court to still seem impartial and to have an air of we will do what is in the best interest, what is legally founded, then that's what they should do going forward. It just really outrages me that lobbyists can you know, worm their way in everywhere. They've already made it into the White House some of these huge regulation machines in the executive branch and in Congress. So having them on the court, like I said, doesn't surprise me, but it kind of infuriates me to see this article and to read the expose. All right, we'll jump away from that one into our article that is from overseas, from NPR. In Afghanistan, coal mining relies on the labor of children. So the Taliban at this point, like I said at the very beginning, has had about a year and some change when it comes to being in control of Afghanistan. And, you know, the question that we should be asking is, things have things gotten better? Are people better off? And, of course, that's hard because COVID was going on. There were huge economic downturns. There's a war in Ukraine that's straining certain supply lines. So at the end of the day, the question is probably no, because countries in going through transitions of power in rough economic times probably don't come out the other side stronger than they were when they first came into power. But we need to take a little bit of a, a closer look here. The author here would argue no. Many families in Afghanistan are facing harsh economic conditions, and it's forcing them to send their young boys to work in state-controlled coal mines. Quote, on weekdays, when most of the kids around the world are at school, 12-year-old Masar in, is in the middle of a grueling shift at the coal mines. Quote, my family sent me to work here last year, he says. He's wearing a no protective equipment, no mask, no goggles, just a pair of cheap rubber shoes. He sliced open his feet to breathe, with toes blackened by coal dust peeking out. That 
What they pay me goes directly to my family, end quote. So their wage in these coal mines can range anywhere from 3 to $8 a day. But it, it really does depend on how risky and how hard the job that they are doing is perceived to be. So they are practically being incentivized, these children who feel that they are obligated to help support their family by working, they are incentivizing them to do more dangerous jobs. We'll pay you more money if you go deeper into the mine. We'll give you more money if you do something that's a little bit more strenuous. Do you want to support your family? Do you want to send money back to your mom and dad so they can eat? Well, I can offer you a better paying job if you do something that's a little bit more risky. And of course, I understand that this is how certain things work. Riskier jobs in coal mines, are going. you're going to get paid more. If you're working a bulldozer at the top, though you have to be certified to use that bulldozer, at the end of the day, if you're going down into the mines in some places, then that's a little bit more risky, and you should be compensated for that. That is capitalism at its greatest. The riskier jobs get paid more. But when it comes to children, children... It is unacceptable. You should not be incentivizing them to do riskier things. If anything, you should have a standard rate for the kids that come and they just haul the coal, even though it's not necessarily, it is still risky. But they should have a standard rate for children workers who stay outside the mines themselves and use the donkeys and guide the donkeys down and haul coal from the entrance of the mine down to wherever they are selling or sending off the coal. That is, of course, a very narrow-viewed solution. I'm not saying it's going to solve anything. I'm not saying it will solve this entire problem. But it is just an example of if you are trying to, like the Taliban says, it took up the, the author talks about how it took up the goals of the previous uh, leadership administration trying to get children out of work. If you're actively trying to do that, you should, one, in lock them into lower-paying jobs that are less risky so then parents feel less incentivized to send their kids away because they can't earn that $8 a day. They could only earn the 3 And also, it gives the children the opportunity to not go in and risk their lives. And then, from an economic perspective, they can go on. If they support their family for a little bit, their family turns the situation around. This is, of course, theoretical, but from an uh, economic perspective, those children will grow older, therefore being able to add more value to the economy long term. So, you know, there are lots of assets, there are lots of folds to this, and I'm not saying I have all the solutions. I am a young 22-year-old who is very naive and doesn't truly understand every aspect of the world, but I think it is extremely sad that children are being forced, not necessarily forced, but they are being sent to these coal mines and are being used as tools to help support a government that obviously doesn't care about them. So, quote, even in wealthy developed nations with advanced technologies, heavy machinery, and readily available protective equipment, mining can be a dangerous and sometimes deadly job. In Afghanistan, there, where much of the coal is mined by hand, very, the very descent into the bowels of this mountain is a gamble. A dozen workers were killed in January after one of the mines collapsed due to heavy rainfall. 
No one from the young miners and mining officials and the labor and humanitarian groups seemed to know or is willing to say whether any of those that perished were kids. The accident was enough to inspire a new ritual among the boys working here. Whenever one of them emerges from the tunnels, the others get with him with a tune from a toy flute, and the boy passed around during the break. A humble celebration for making it out alive. And the fact that there is a ceremony at all for surviving a shift is extremely sad. And it really it breaks my heart. These children shouldn't be hanging with their friends, getting they should be hanging with their friends, getting dirty, throwing mud pies, not getting dirty from black coal dust. But because of the war in Ukraine, among other factors, coal prices are up around the world as well as demand. And the Taliban has increased its exports of coal by 20% over the course of the last year to keep up with that demand. So I don't see anything changing here soon. And the question I asked is, is the Taliban making Afghanistan better off? Of course, I can't speak to every aspect, and I know that was a very general question for a very specific article. But in this aspect, in protecting children from working in these terrible conditions, I would say no. I would say the Taliban is not doing a good job. And I am sure, at the end of the day, they have done some okay things. They've done some terrible things when it comes to women in public and allowing girls to go to school. And I'm sure if I talk to some people who are not necessarily apologists, but believe in what the Taliban's doing, they would be able to list some good things that they're doing. But at the end of the day, when they say that they're committed to the last administration's policy of getting children out of labor, then they failed on this one. And it is not acceptable. We really have to take a hard look. At the end of the day, we have to take a hard look at these practices and maybe even sanction some of their, "Mm, nope, I take that back. That was me thinking on the fly there. I don't know if the government should get involved in that way. But at the end of the day, pointing it out at least and having an understanding of what's going on there is important. And I think that everybody deserves to know. That's why this article was in there. All right. So our last article, well, not really. It's our daily delight. This one comes from the Dodo. Newlyweds can't believe their eyes as monkey family interrupts photo shoot. So getting married is really one of the most important days in many people's lives. And, you know, they often bring videographers, photographers around to capture it. It's kind of obligatory in today's day and age. Quote, while posing for a videographer after their wedding along a jungle path in Cameron, Mexico, Nango and her groom were unexpectedly met by a local family, a mother monkey with her tiny baby in tow, end quote. And the way this couple reacted is better than most. Honestly, it's better than I probably would have reacted. Quote, I was so shocked at first because I just saw something come at us and had no idea what it was. But my husband was super calm and she just climbed right on him with her baby, Nango told the dodo. Quote, we were all so shocked and amazed, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos, there's a TikTok one here, or any of the cute photos, or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there also is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, follow if you would like. And besides that, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>